0: Yeah, I, I know that, uh, obviously, uh, I'm sure all of you are very, uh, very shaken up. Uh, you went to Miron and expected to have a wonderful, wonderful time. and Perhaps you actually did, at different moments, have a very wonderful and inspirational time. But then uh, it was marred by a great, great uh, tragedy. And Hashem should bring uh, much comfort, much nechama to all the families that uh, lost uh, husbands, a, a child, a grandparent and uh, the people that are in the hospital, we hope that they should have a rafur shleim, and shemayim, a shar, cholei, cholei Yisrael. You know, Jews have been through many, many tragedies. Uh, we've been through a Holocaust, we've been through the Korban Besamekdesh, we've been through things that even were much more massive than this. And the Avaita of every year is always to rebuild, never to give in to despair. That's on one hand, uh, we have to feel the pain, of all those who suffer, and it has to be our pain. It can't just be their pain. So when people ask you, for example, uh, is everybody okay, well, you know, <laughs> who's everybody? Everybody is not just us. Everybody is everybody, and everybody is not so okay. And we're not okay, but still, uh, the Avaydah of HaKadosh is uh, never to give up and to keep on going. And uh, don't despair that we still have to have a, I, I know Rebbe Mayeshiva, he's, daughter got married like Bomer Knight and the, the mother, his wife asked me, how can we have uh, Sheva Brachos, how can we have celebrations after the deaths of all these people? And the, the answer is you have to have a Simcha. You know, at the Chasne itself, we break a glass so we should remember the Chorben Beis Amikdash, and then we dance at the same time. It's not considered a contradiction. You live with two different conflicting conflicting emotions. I don't know if any of you have uh Acquaintances or relatives who who were injured or died, I don't know, but whatever. But yourself uh, a Chaverim, so really, they're all part of our a part of our family. So uh, to the degree that one can dedicate their learning for other people, it's not so touchy, actually. But uh, we should dedicate our learning today uh, for the Eilu Neshama of those uh, people who died. That uh, someone pointed out an interesting thing, though, that. Uh, no, this was shortly after the whole crowd, 100,000 people, said Shema Yisrael. So they actually left the world uh, after declaring in a massive group uh, the Yichud, the unity of HaKadosh Baruch. So are they saying, Shema Yisrael? This is what they do. Yeah. Part, of, part, of the ceremony, part of the ceremony in Mehran is that... Um, Before they light the fire. Yeah, right. Before <laughs> the fire, <laughs> they say Shema Yisrael together. Kabbalah Solmolcho Shemaim. So right after they signed Ani Oh yeah, was said okay? Was I? I I don't know, but it was around one o'clock in the morning or something. I I don't know all the details, but so in a sense, there was kind of a Kiddush Hashem aspect uh, to the deaths. But no, okay, maybe it's the other way around. Since Hashem was gezer, they would die. So Hashem made it that they would be able to be Makadash, Hashem Shemayim before they died. Okay, uh, so to get back to the topic we were talking about, we've been talking a little bit about uh, the different ways you can have a child uh, other than the normal relationship of husband and wife. And just to review it very, very quickly, uh, in terms of sperm uh, donation, so uh, if, these, uh, if it's the husband's sperm that's fertilizing the wife's egg, in vitro fertilization, that generally speaking is going to be okay. The only problem is uh, that some postkin were afraid that the husband giving sperm outside of intercourse would be equivalent to masturbation. But the the bottom line is, since it's being done for the purpose of having children, uh, that's not considered to be usur. But some rabbis say they have to wait uh, five years before they do it, because it's only when they see that there's no other way they would be able to have a child. (laughs) On the other hand, when the uh, sperm is donated from a third party, a third party sperm donation, so then you'll recall, the Satma Rebbe took the position that that was called adultery and the woman is forbidden to stay married to her husband and the child that is born from that is like a child born from a woman who commits adultery. The child is a mamzer. He cannot even marry another Jew unless that other Jew is either a convert or a mam- mamzer, mamzeris. And the like, that was the Satma Rebbe. But Ramosha Feinstein disagreed. Reb Feinstein said, that's not adultery. There's no sexual intimacy, and the kid is not a mamser. But, Rav Moshe said, there's another reason why he didn't like donor sperm, and that is because of the the possibility, even if it's unlikely, of a brother marrying a sister, uh, years later, because sperm donors tend to give more than once, and it would be possible that the sperm donor to one woman who had a girl is a sperm donor to another woman that has a boy, and that boy and girl may marry later on, and the brother marries a sister. But then Rav Moshe said, halachically, that's a problem only if the sperm donor is Jewish. But if the sperm donor is not Jewish and he impregnated Jewish women, he would not halachically be related to those children. Do you understand that? That if a non-Jewish man, people don't always realize this, if a non-Jewish man has a child from a Jewish woman, the child is Jewish, I mean, everyone knows that, the child is Jewish, but halakhically, the non-Jew has no paternal relationship. That actually means, therefore, the non-Jewish man has a child from a Jewish woman, and then the non-Jewish man has a child from another Jewish woman. Those two children are not siblings because uh, neither of them has a father, <laughs> meaning they have different mothers, and although biologically they have the same father, but that father is not related to them. And therefore, paradoxically, you can actually have, halakhically, not, not legally, halakhically, uh, you could have a half-brother and half-sister married if they have different Jewish mothers and the same non-Jewish father, Because halachically, they're not siblings. Therefore, Moshe says, if you use a non-Jewish sperm donor, there would be no problem of halachic incest. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say, if a child from... if two children from the same non-Jewish father but different Jewish mother, they still shed genes. No, of course they do. Of course they do. So genetically, it would not be advised, 100%. Uh, But halachically, uh, since they are not related to the father because a non-Jewish father does not have paternity over the uh, daughter from a Jew, or the child from a Jew, so halachically they are not related. Yeah, genetically they're related, and uh, to the degree that uh, incest could create a, a, an increase in birth defects, they certainly should be careful. But at least halachically, uh, this would not be a, a, a technical problem, and therefore Moshe Feinstein's very strange conclusion was, that if a woman wants to use a sperm donor, she should use a non-Jewish sperm donor, not a Jewish one, because a Jewish sperm donor has a problem of a brother marrying a sister. A non-Jewish sperm donor does not have the problem of a brother marrying a sister. But Rav Moshe made the obvious point that since the father if, you know, well, if it's a Jew or a non Jew, but, but the husband is certainly not the father. The husband is not the father, for sure, so he certainly is not Machayim, be fruitful and multiply. So, uh, in a way, it's a way of having a child, but, but there's, no, there's no pru or vum mitzvah that the husband is fulfilling simply because he is certainly not the father of the child. Whether the donor is Jewish or not Jewish, the one person who's not the donor here is the husband. So the husband is not makayim, any any mitzvah. So that's the issue of, of sperm donation. Now let's flip it around and let's look at egg donation. So egg donation is an opposite type of problem. Uh, and That is, you have a husband and a wife, and the wife is able to carry a child. The wife can carry a child, but the wife is either not ovulating or the quality of her eggs is not... Uh, good for for pregnancy. So we have women who donate eggs, right? Women donate uh, eggs. And what's going to happen is that husband's sperm will fertilize donor's egg in an in vitro fertilization in a petri dish. And then if the fertilization is successful, the embryo will be carried by his wife for nine months. (coughs) And after nine months, they will give birth to a child. So there are a few issues here about uh, egg donation. Uh, Number one, uh, here, you have a question of who is the mother. Unlike sperm donation, where we know who the mother is, here you have potentially two different candidates for mother. Is the mother the genetic mother, the one whose DNA is part of the genome of the baby? That would be the egg donor. Or is the mother the one that carried the baby for nine months? Now, the, the, we call that the gestational mother. The ge- gestation simply means the pregnancy for nine months. Now, this is going to be extremely important if the egg donor is not Jewish. If the egg donor is not Jewish, but how she is considered to be the mother, that would actually mean the child is a goy and the child would need a conversion as a baby, I think we discussed Babies can be converted. Uh, again, just go over that really, really quickly. Uh, you can convert a child at any age. You can convert a newborn baby. Uh, the only thing is, in other words, you dunk him. You know, if it's a boy, he gets a brist. Uh, if it's a boy or a girl, they're dunked in a mikveh. That doesn't mean you throw them, but the parent goes into the mikveh with the baby. And the parents accept in front of the basin that they will raise the child according to halacha. That's a conversion of a minor. You don't need the kid's consent, obviously. A newborn baby didn't agree to anything. The only thing that's unique about the conversion of a minor is that when they become bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah, they have the right to say no. They have the right to say they don't want to be Jewish. And then they become a goy. And if they want to become Jewish later, they have to do the conversion of a grown-up. They have to do the conversion of an adult. Now, uh, again, I want to correct the misconception because I hear this from a lot of people. It is not necessary to reconvert when you become bas mitzvah or bar mitzvah. It's the other way around. The, the one who was converted as a child has the right to say, I don't want to be Jewish. If they don't say anything, if they don't do anything, then by default they are Jewish. They do not have to go to the mikveh again. They do not have to accept the commandments again. Uh, Failure to renounce equals acceptance. The only thing is that failure to renounce equals acceptance only if they knew they had the right to renounce. So if someone didn't know he was adopted, if someone didn't know he was converted, or even if they knew they were converted as a baby, but they didn't know they had the right to renounce, then whenever they find out, even if they find out when they're 50 years old, they have the right to renounce them. Hopefully they won't want to do that. Okay, So that's the conversion of a minor. So the point basically is that do children who are born from donated eggs have to undergo a conversion process? The answer is it depends how halacha defines the mother. If the mother is defined as the gestational mother, and in my example, that's a Jewish woman. Then the child will not need a conversion, because the child is a Jew by birth, not by conversion. If, on the other hand, halacha defines the mother as the genetic contributor, the child is a goy, even though they were born from a Jewish mother. Right? They were born from a Jewish mother, but their Jewish mother is i I'm sorry, their mother is halachically the egg donor. So. This is an important question, meaning most egg donors, in the United States at least, are non-Jewish women. And if they're non-Jewish women, there is at least a shayla, does the child need to be converted in order to be Jewish? So like many, many things, this is a big, big machlokas. Most opinions actually say the child does not have to be converted because the child was born from a Jewish mother and as long as the child is born from a Jewish mother, we really don't care about the genetic origin. So, in that sense, that's what most opinions say. However, there are some opinions that's, that say that the child genetically is a guy, and if the child is genetically a guy, the child would need a conversion. So the truth of the matter is, if you're advising a, 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 a parent, a family, uh, I, would say, I would tell them that they should undergo a conversion process just to be 100% sure the child is Jewish. Because the opinions that follow the birth mother will say the child is Jewish, but the opinions that follow the genetic mother will say the child is not Jewish. So if you want to be 100% sure that there are no problems, you have to convert. But of course, this is what is called Giorg, Misafek. I think I, I've talked about this before. Gior misafek is something that happens a lot. That means conversion out of doubt. Meaning conversion out of doubt is what we do when we're, the person may be Jewish, the person may already be Jewish, but we're not 100% sure. So we do a conversion to cover our bases. This happens a lot. I'll, I'll give you an example where it, it typically happens. Uh, someone comes to my or someone comes to a yeshiva and uh, their grandmother converted in 1930. Their mother's mother converted in 1930, and we don't really know if it was an Orthodox conversion or a conservative or Reform conversion. Now, if it was an Orthodox conversion, then grandma is Jewish, her, mother, her daughter is Jewish, and therefore the kid is Jewish, because everybody was born from a Jewish mother. But if grandma's conversion wasn't a valid conversion, then grandma is a guy, and her daughter is a guy. Everything's the mother, right? The father makes no difference here. And the grandson is a guy, right? So what do we do when we get a conversion paper, and we can't really tell if it was an orthodox halakhic conversion or not? The reason why I mentioned grandma is because if it's mother, that would be usually recent enough that we could check on the rabbis. But sometimes, you know, you're talking about a conversion from the 1930s or something. You know, we don't know who the rabbis are. The rabbis aren't alive. It's hard to check. So standard operating procedure is, hey, we might as well convert you. If you want to be religious, at least, we'll convert you. Maybe you're Jewish and don't need the conversion. Yeah, maybe you don't need the conversion. But just in case, convert, right? So that's called Gior Misafik. Now, let me point out that at least for a girl, Gior Misafik is not cost-free, you might think, oh, why well, it's good. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm either Jewish or I'm not Jewish. I'll convert, and now I'm Jewish, right? So what's the problem? There is a little bit of a problem, and that is a woman who converts cannot marry a Kohen. So uh, if you're a born Jew, you could marry a Kohen. If you're a converted Jew, uh, a woman, you cannot marry a Kohen. So there is a cost that you need to be aware of, and that is if you undergo a Gior because of Safet, because it's a safek, a doubt, if you're a not, you will not be allowed to marry a colleague. So there is uh, a certain elimination of the uh, marriage pool that you might uh, you might face. So the Guillermi safek, the same way it works if grandma has a conversion from the 1930s, it'll actually work in the egg donation scenario, exactly the same problem. If halacha is uncertain or is, if there's a machlokas, can, uh, do I follow the birth mother, and therefore you're Jewish? Or do I follow the egg donor, and therefore you're not Jewish? And therefore, misafek, you do a conversion. That's great. But the problem is, uh, I, mean, you're, I mean, you're a new newborn baby. You're not thinking about shuduchim yet. But the problem is, you might not be allowed to marry a kohi. Now, that, that's really another is, really. Meaning, I, I'm, I'm assuming in what I just said, that if a little baby is converted as a girl, they cannot marry a kohen when they grow up. That's another makhluk, because there are some opinions that actually say if the girl converted below the age of three, she could marry a kohen. So if that is the case, you wouldn't have the problem here. But the Shulchan Aruch is not that way. And the Shulchan Aruch paskin's, even a newborn baby that converts, is not allowed to marry a kohen. So every Giyor Misatek is going to have that particular uh, problem. Um, In terms of, we don't really have time to go over all the proofs of this, I I just want you to be aware of the bottom line question, but just in terms of basic logic, like what would the logical arguments be on either side of the equation? Who's the mother? So scientifically, the argument would be that the egg donor should be the mother because, because your unique characteristics, whether it's your the color of your eyes, your hair, the appearance that you have, even your intelligence. They do not come from the woman that carried you. They come from the woman whose egg contributed 50% of your genetic contribution. So obviously, uh, the mother who carried me, or whoever carries a baby, was an incubator, but did not contribute characteristics and therefore, the argument, scientifically, would be the egg donor which has a stronger claim to motherhood than the uh, incubator. However, in spiritually, spiritually, there is an argument the other way. Uh, and the spiritual argument is, again, I know I'm reviewing a little bit, that the Gomorrah in Masathas Nida that says, before a child is born, an angel teaches them the whole Torah in the womb. And uh, that kind of imprints the Torah on their neshama. So even if they forget, and when they're born, right, the malach hits them in the lip and they forget everything, but it's part of their panemius. It is part of their internal spiritual nature. Which means, spiritually, the nine months of gestation are not just viewed as kind of mechanical incubation. It's not just, oh, you put the kid in a... uh, uh, in a radiator or something, in a hot oven, a warm oven to keep them warm. Rather, there's spiritual imprinting and transformations that are taking place. Now, the argument would be, therefore, that the most important, most important determinant of motherhood is in whose body were, the, were those nine months spent. And if those nine months were spent in a Jewish woman's body, that would give the child the holiness of a Jewish, Jewish soul. So it is a machlokas. Yes? But again, the halacha is most opinions follow the birth mother and therefore in this this example the child does not need a conversion but some opinions do follow the egg donor so the child might need a conversion and since it is at least a machlokas the advice that is proper to follow is Giyor misafek. And the Suffolk does have the downside that the uh, girl is not able to marry a kohen. Yeah. Um, the opinion that follows the one that the the mother yeah. is going to be is they follow it for that reason. Uh, well, no, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that I think that is the ultimate reason, really. But but they don't just say that. Because, halakha halakha generally, because you can't possibly generally. Yeah. Based no, no, you're, you're correct. Yeah, they don't. They, they 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 follow it based on. Proofs from the Gemara. I mean, everything is based on proofs, but I'm just trying to give you the, uh, an underlying logic. You, your point is actually 100% correct. We would never, I'm glad you said it, I was going to say the same thing. Uh, we would never decide a halacha based on a general spiritual concept. Uh, general spiritual concepts have to be rooted in more specific textual proofs in order to be translated into, uh, into halacha. Now, let me just remind you that the same problem exists in the case of a surrogate mother, but it's the opposite. It's the same problem. Surrogacy is an opposite problem of egg donation. Well, it's the same problem, but it's an opposite case. In egg donation, the Jewish wife, because we're talking about a Jewish wife in all cases, a Jewish wife is able to carry a baby, but she doesn't ovulate. That's egg donation. Surrogacy is the opposite problem, the Jewish wife ovulates. She does produce eggs, but she's not able to carry a baby, either because she had a hysterectomy, the uterus was removed, or her health is precarious. So she might get a heart, tr- heart attack or a stroke, God forbid, uh, an embolism, if she has to carry a baby. So, and so in this case, how, what's going to happen? Husband's sperm is going to fertilize his wife's egg, not a donor's egg. Husband's sperm is going to fertilize his wife's egg in vitro fertilization, but then the fertilized embryo is going to be transferred to a third woman who will carry the baby for nine months, and then she signs an agreement, which she doesn't always keep, by the way, that this is going to be a lot of emotional problems. Yeah, I mean, surrogacy is very precarious because if you think about it, you're asking a woman who carried a baby for nine months to give it, back. To give it, to give it away. So uh, it's not so, it actually is not so easy. Uh, so there are a lot of cases, well, you know, I can't say a lot of cases, but there are some famous cases, not, not Jewish cases, just general cases, of the surrogates uh, refusing to give the baby back. See, egg donation, you don't have a problem. Egg donation, huh? you gave an egg, you, know, you have no personal attachment. But surrogacy, you carry the baby, for nine, uh, for nine months. And there are some famous cases of these surrogates refusing to give the baby back, and the, everyone has to go to court, and judges have to decide, and uh, you know, sometimes the surrogate wins, because some, some courts have actually said that surrogacy contracts are illegal. It's like selling a baby. Right? You can't make a contract to sell a baby. Now, surrogacy is essentially selling back the baby that the woman carried for nine months. So there are actually some, in in the United States at least, there are some jurisdictions that actually say surrogacy contracts are against the law and therefore the surrogate can decide to keep the baby if they want, but in most of the United States and in Israel, and in Israel, a surrogacy contract is permissible, but you have the same Shiloh, who is the mother? If the surrogate, now this is the opposite problem, if the surrogate is a non-Jew, but the uh, genetic contributor is a Jew, so it's the same problem in reverse. If I follow birth mother, the child would need a conversion. Would need a conversion. If, on the other hand, I follow genetic contributor, the child would not need. Which means, whatever you say by egg donation, you will say exactly the opposite by surrogacy. Because if by egg donation... I say the kid doesn't need conversion because they were born from the Jewish wife, then by surrogacy they would need conversion because they were born from the non Jewish surrogate. If on the other hand, I say the child needs a conversion because they were conceived from, from a non Jewish egg donor, then by surrogacy they wouldn't need a conversion because they were conceived from a Jewish egg. In other words, it is exactly the same question, but the answer to the question is gonna be in reverse, okay? So that's uh, one important, so once again, the the bottom line answer would be that you absolutely have to have a Gior Misafek, a Gior out of doubt, for sure, first of all, in this case, most opinions would say the kid is a guy because the birth mother is a non-Jew, and uh, once again, uh, the woman will have the uh, downside that she will eventually not be able to marry a, a a co-e. Okay? So surrogacy and end donation can be treated the same way. However, uh, with surrogacy, there's some other problems to consider as well. Uh, number one, uh, what type of surrogate uh, should you have? Uh, so should... Very often, m- m- most, many surrogates are actually married women. They're married women who have had children before, etc., and they're willing to be surrogates. So, a surrogate who is a married woman, whether she's Jewish or not Jewish, well, okay, l- 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 let me step back a little bit because let me give you some, some general knowledge. Right? One of the Ten Commandments is uh, don't commit adultery. Right? So, a Jew is not allowed to commit adultery with another man's wife. Uh, is there an issue of adultery if a man has relations with a woman who is in a non-Jewish marriage? So, so it actually depends if the woman is Jewish or not Jewish. Meaning, a Jew cannot have a marriage with a non-Jew. So if a non-Jewish man is married to a Jewish woman and another Jewish man commits adultery with that Jewish woman... He hasn't committed adultery. Because that I mean he hasn't Are two, they married? They're not married. They're not married. Yeah, I mean he's having sex outside of marriage. That's not good. But it's not adultery. But <coughs> Wait, what if a non-Jewish woman is like I don't know if it apply is like, a nida? Would that have anything or no, no, a non Jewish woman cannot it become be an, it's not this a nida. There's is no issue. Yeah, there's no nida there at all. Yeah. Now, if on the other hand A Jewish man has relations with a non-Jewish woman who's married to a non-Jew. Now, of course, besides the sin of being with a non-Jew, that's a sin, but he's also guilty of adultery because Jewish law recognizes marriages between two Goyim. In other words, two Goyim have the koach to get married and Halacha recognizes those marriages And if a Jew, or a non-Jew for that matter, were to have relations with a married woman, they would be guilty of adultery. Okay, that's very important. And the talacha recognizes that two non-Jews can have a valid marriage. In fact, now you may ask me, well, what ritual do they have to go through? I mean, Jewish marriage has the giving of the ring. The Rambam writes, there is no ritual at all for non-Jewish marriages. If they simply live together as husband and wife, I don't mean Stam live together, but they live together with the intention to be a husband and a wife, that's a marriage. You don't need witnesses, you don't need any ceremony, you don't need a ksuba, there is no equivalent of a ksuba for non-Jews. But if they live as husband and wife, if they, if they put Mr. and Mrs. on the mailbox, they are halachically married as Noahites. And if I, as a Jew, have a relations with the non-Jewish woman, in addition to the sin of being with a non-Jewish woman, that, that's a sin, any anyway. you know, even if she's single, I am actually guilty of adultery. Masha Enken, you understand, if I would be with a Jewish woman married to a guy, or a non-Jewish woman married to a Jew, I'm not guilty of adultery, because in the eyes of Halacha, they are not married. So it's there is no such thing as a marriage between a Jew and a guy. It's not valid. Yeah, yeah. Does that mean that if a Jew has relations with a Kayin who's married to a someone who's not allowed to marry? No, no, very big, okay, very good question, but a very, very big difference. Why? Uh, most marriages that are simply forbidden are still marriages after the fact. So, for example, yeah. if a Kayin marries a divorced woman, yeah. or if a Kayin marries a converted woman, he's committing a sin. It's an avela. Right. But it is a marriage. Yes. yes. So if someone were to commit adultery with his wife until he divorces her, which he's supposed to do, yeah. he's guilty of adultery. So, of are... so you have to understand there's a difference between forbidden marriages and invalid mm-hmm. marriages. Okay. Many marriages are forbidden, but they're still valid. Let me give you an example. Incest is a good example. Uh, if a brother were to marry his sister, that's invalid. That's nothing. If a mother were to marry a son uh, and therefore a man that has relations with the so-called wife is not guilty of adultery there is no marriage. So that's an invalid marriage. A Jew and a guy is an invalid marriage but a calling and a divorced woman is a prohibited marriage but it's still a valid when I say valid I don't mean they're allowed to stay married they're not allowed to stay married but it means until the marriage is terminated it is adultery for somebody to isn't incest adultery too? No, no, well, uh, well, uh, incest is not adultery, I mean again, the, 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 I mean, not incest is, a is an very that you're high you're at the same punishment as adultery, no but it's, it's not the word adultery. Uh, adultery is right. always only a man, you know, relations with a married woman. Yeah. No, but, 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 but that was not my example. What I was saying is the other way, I was talking about the non incest, meaning if a brother marries a sister and a third party has relations with the sister. He's not guilty of adultery <coughs> because the brother and the sister were not married. See? The brother thinks he's marrying a sister. like Okay, so here's the problem with surrogacy, therefore. Uh, besides the issue of conversion, if the surrogate is married, and it makes no difference if the surrogate is a non-Jew married to a non-Jew, or a Jew married to a Jew, the question is, is the husband guilty of adultery because his sperm, again, it's very similar to the Machlokas of and Satnarevi, because his sperm, now it's not his sperm, it's his sperm via the fertilized embryo, but the embryo is going into this married woman's body, and that embryo is comprised of his sperm, as well as his wife's egg. So, there may be an issue of adultery, and so because of this uh, it is recommended that the surrogate be a single woman rather than a married woman. But if she's married, if she's a guy married to a Jew, uh, that wouldn't be a problem, but, but at least you have to be sure that she's not a Jew married to a Jew or a guy married to a guy, because there is the possibility of adultery, that's one issue. And a second issue to consider is that the surrogate should not have an incestuous relationship with the husband. So let me, let me, again, let me give you a concrete example. It is very common in the world of surrogacy that a sister volunteer to be a surrogate for her sister. And his sister agrees to be a surrogate for her sister. Sometimes, even a mother, if it's a young mother, a young mother may agree to be the surrogate of her daughter. You see that? In other words, you have a uh, husband and wife cannot have children, but the wife's mother can carry a baby. So the wife's mother agrees. That's kind of confusion. But if the child is eventually born, it is both her granddaughter and her daughter. it's her daughter because it was born from her body, but it's her granddaughter because it was born from her daughter's egg. So it's a little confusing who is the mother. But more than that, halachically the problem would be the same issue as the adultery issue, but here it's incest. One of the incestuous relationships of the Torah is a man is not allowed to have relations with his wife's sister. That's an erva. His wife's sister. And certainly, a man is not allowed to have relations with his mother-in-law. So you're back to the same type of issue as the married woman, and that is, if the embryo that has husband's sperm goes into the body of his wife's sister, or goes into the body of his mother-in-law, then potentially you have an incest problem. So therefore, the, uh, the net result has to be that the surrogate that you get should be an unmarried woman and should not be a relation to the husband or the wife that would be incestuous if the husband were to have relations. And then the choice would be Jew versus Goy. And if it's going to be a non Jewish single woman, you're going to have a problem with conver- or a need for conversion and the like. If it's Jewish, you would not have a problem of conversion. But you would still have a problem, who is the mother, in terms of you know, which relatives you can't marry and the like, and you'd have to preserve both lists. You'd have to have a list of both sets of relatives in terms of not being allowed to, to marry. So that's kind of the basic uh, issue of, of uh, surrogacy. This is called in Hebrew, em pundakait, which literally means the innkeeper mother, meaning the uh, one that... Uh, carries the the baby like like an innkeeper, and uh, it is uh, as they say in the United States it's been around for a long time uh, Israel uh, has laws about it uh, but you know the all I can say is in the from community, surrogacy is not used that often you know egg donation is is fairly common surrogacy is not used that often uh, it, it creates a lot of complications and also emotionally it's difficult because you really have i mean you know, egg donation, you don't even know who the egg donor is typically. It's very, very anonymous. In surrogacy, you're bringing, a married couple is bringing a woman into their family life for at least nine months and maybe later. So, uh, you know, it's a little undermining of, of shalom bias and, and other things. And, uh, and, of course, as I indicated, the surrogate may decide not to give the baby up. And that could be a very, very messy, disruptive and difficult problem. So in the religious world, you're not going to see surrogacy that often. And also, let me point out, surrogacy costs money. See, egg donation is, uh, does not cost that much money. Meaning, if I want, not if I, if my wife wanted to have a child, through egg donation, uh, the costs are relatively minimal. You know, you pay for the surgery for the egg donor, etc. and Maybe you give her a little extra. But if somebody is a surrogate, and they're going to carry a baby for nine months, it may cost uh, thirty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars, it may cost quite a lot of a uh, lot of money uh, for surrogacy and the like. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um if like because surrogacy is so hard emotionally if, yeah. if we are able to create an artificial room that is able to carry a child to like obviously we don't have that yet, but we yes. can do the chari- carry Yes, classes. yes, this it's is a yeah, up. yeah, this is a very, very interesting uh, question. Uh we don't have, as you say, we don't have an artificial womb. Uh, an in vitro embryo can only be there for like two weeks, and then you either put it in the womb or it uh, dies, or you freeze it. Uh, but in theory, in principle, there is absolutely no reason why we couldn't have an artificial womb. And here is the question, the, the halakhic questions of artificial wombs are, are staggering. Because if you follow the rule that the status of a child is determined by the gestation, then the argument would go that a child born from an artificial womb doesn't have any mother at all. In fact, you could make the argument, this would be a horrendous argument, but that a child born from an artificial womb is not a human being. He's not Jewish. He wasn't born from a Jewish mother. And maybe he's not human because he was not born from a human mother. Now what does that mean? You're going to have a, a, a person who talks and thinks and does everything that a human being can do? And what? You could kill him? You could cut him up for body parts? So there's some real, real problems because the problem is that if, if I go with the traditional definition of halacha, that you're Jewish if you're born from a Jewish mother, that doesn't really address the artificial womb issue. Now, if I had to guess I guess in Halakha, I mean it 's not a psaka obviously I would have to guess that the rule that you follow the birth mother is only if there is a birth mother, so the birth mother trumps the genetic donor. In the absence of a birth mother, my guess is halacha would go back to the genetic donor. But that would be a guess, and I, I don 't know if that's even true, because I think it's inconceivable that we would simply say the kid is not Jewish or the kid is not human. that, that would be uh, an unbelievable, frankly, an unbelievable type of psak for someone that exhibits all of the talents of a human being. You know, it's much worse than a golem. You You know what a golem is? A golem is an artificial person that is created from the dirt, and through a Sefer of Kabbalah called Sefer Yitzira, a human being can actually bring, you know, a great tzaddik can actually bring that golem to life. Uh, so a golem is an artificial person, not made by God, made by man through sefer yitzira. Now the most famous golem story here, here, actually, there's a little bit of interesting chabad history, is the go- uh, Mairal, the Mairal of Prague. Did anyone else ever make golems? Say again. Yeah. Who? Did anyone else besides the? Yeah. The, well, well, you're different stories. Uh, is he the last one? Uh, it seems that he was the last one. So, the Moral of Prague uh, lived in Prague, and he lived in the 1500s. And uh, the story was that he made a golem who was kind of like a superman that would protect the Jews from blood libels and all the different accusations. And uh, the Morale then decommissioned the golem. The Maral, uh locked the golem in Prague. There's a synagogue, the Moral Shul is still there. And he locked the golem uh, in, the, uh, in the attic of the synagogue, and nobody can ever go there, etc. Now, here we get into a real problem. The Maral died in the 1500s. The first time we hear about the golem is somebody discovers, or claims to have discovered, a long-lost manuscript in the 1800s that's dated the 1500s, that talks about a golem and all the the miraculous things the golem did. But for 300 years, nobody ever heard of the the golem. The golem wasn't mentioned. So a lot of historians say, this is a made-up story. This is a made-up story, it was a legend. In fact, the guy that found the manuscript was a forger, he forged other things, so you can't really trust him. Huh? Uh, he was actually a rabbi, who was a Talmud but he happened to be a forger too. His name was Yehuda Rosenberg. Now, here is where Chabad has maybe a different take on this, because the Friediker Rebbe says, that he actually went up into the attic of the Maraels show. And you know, they unlocked it for him. And he said he saw the golem, he saw the golem. He said he saw the golem. So I can't, you know, I, 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 I don't know what to, what, what to, what to say yeah, about all this. of the stories that have been made up. Yeah, it could be a lot of the stories you made up. And they do tell stories at various times that the Germans, the Nazis, uh, broke into the room and when they saw the golem, it still had like the, the light of the Shekhinah, they, they, they died, and killed them. But the golem killed them, something. And uh, so, but but I do want to point out that a golem is an artificial person and a golem cannot talk because the divine soul is what gives you the koach of Dippur. And a golem does not have the divine soul. The golem has the nefesh abahami. It does not have the nefesh al-uki. Uh So a golem cannot talk and it's also, A golem does not have internal organs. So if you were to take a knife and stick it into the golem, you would just have dirt. So the golem is not a human being. If you kill a golem, you probably can't kill a golem because they're very strong, uh, but if you kill a golem, you're know you not chayev for murder. A golem does not count for a minion. (laughs) But uh, a child born from an artificial womb is a very different situation. Even if you say a golem, is not a human being, a golem does not count for a minion. Okay, a golem was made by mankind, but here you're talking about uh, a child with internal organs and, 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 and uh, genetically a human being, but he was born from an artificial womb. I think it's much more difficult just to say, oh, the kid is not human, and do with him what you, uh, what you want to do. So my guess would be that when there is no birth mother at all, we would go back to genetics, even if I don't follow the genetic mother. Uh, when you have a birth mother. Okay, so now, uh, this issue of uh, surrogacy, so the two things to know about surrogacy is number one, three things. Number one, if it's a non-Jewish surrogate, you will need conversion, and the girl cannot marry a And uh, Number two, the surrogate should not be married, and that means guy to guy or Jew to Jew. And number three, the surrogate should not be a relation that the husband would not be allowed to have intercourse with, such as uh, his his wife's sister or his sister, or his wife's mother or his mother, because there is a problem whether that is an incestuous relationship. So the surrogate must be a single, unrelated woman who is either Jewish or non-Jewish. That would be the the restrictions on on the surrogacy. Now here, let me just share with you one interesting proof, one, one Talmudic proof or a Midrashic proof to whether we follow birth mother or whether we follow genetic donor. It's a fascinating proof. Now it's a Midrash. Now, here, now the same way you said before, we don't really pasken halacha based on general spiritual ideas. It's equally true that we cannot pasken halacha based on Midrashim. Because midrashim are stories, and the stories are emes, are but sometimes they're meshalim, sometimes they're metaphor. Meaning, people always ask the question, are midrashim all true or are they not true? So, that's, that's a false question. All midrashim are true. But true does not always mean literally true. You understand this? Chazal are conveying spiritual ideas sometimes through parables. That doesn't mean it's false. It's true. What it's teaching you is true. But the particular way they're conveying the truth may not always be literal. This is a very important cloud in Midrashim. Some Midrashim are literally true, and some Midrashim are spiritually true, but have to be understood as a mashal. Now, the big question you'll ask me is, well, how do I know which one is which? I I, I hear a midrash, I hear a story. Uh, When do I assume that it's literally true? When do I assume that it's a mashal? That's a really good question. You know, the Rambam writes that in the Hakdama to his commentary to the Mishnah, that he is going to write a book that will tell you which midrashim are literal and which midrashim are not literal. But Litzareinu uh, Hagadol, either he never wrote the book or we lost the book. We don't have the book. So the truth is we don't really have the book. Uh, but uh, a fortune like the Maral will often give you the symbolic meaning. But I don't know if you know this. The Maral was before the Baal Shem Tov. So the Maral was not a chassid. But uh, do you know that the Maral was the direct great-great-great-grandfather of the Yalta Rebbe? The Yalta Rebbe is a direct descendant of the Maral of Prague. Uh, which is why, quite literally, in Hasidus, the Maral is grandfathered in, meaning to say, all Hasidim learned the Maral Svarim, even though the Maral was not a Hasid, because he was the ancestor of some of the great uh, Hasidisha, Hasidisha Rebis. Um, okay. In fact, in the Tanya, when the Tanya writes, on the Shar page, on the cover page, so the Tanya calls the Sefer, a collection of sayings, that's the official name of, of Tanya. And he writes, the Alta Rebbe writes, he wrote the words himself off the cover, Mipi Svarim Vesifrim. From Svarim and scribes, contem- so Sifrim are contemporary rabbis, but Svarim. So what is the Svarim? When the Alta Rebbe says, I am anthologizing, I and mean, of course he has, he has so many conditions, but he says in his modesty, I am anthologizing from Svarim. So I think there's a Masaira that the particular two swarim, or two authors, that he directly was thinking about was the Maral and the Sholoh HaKaddish. Those were the two like swarim for which he considered to be the primary source of the Tanya. I mean, there are many, many other, I mean, every page of the Tanya has many, many sources, but these were like the, which is interesting, he doesn't quote, see, it's interesting, he doesn't quote them. He yeah. In the Tanya, I don't think there's a single quote from the Shiloh or the Maral, but, but the Rebbe's kind of telling you they're in the background. I mean, the background of my thought is the Shalah and the Maral, who is his great-great-grandfather. Uh, okay. Alrighty. So now, so, so the point I'm making is that you can't bring halachas from Medrash, but nevertheless, there is a Medrash that kind of proves this situation. If you remember, with all of the Shvatim, and you probably heard this Medrash before, with all of the Shvatim, it says that uh, the emos got pregnant and they gave birth Bataar, the exception is with Dina when Dina was born to Leah it only says Leah gave birth to Dina it doesn't say Leah got pregnant and she gave birth to Dina so Rashi asks the question why doesn't it say like it says with every other tribe Bataar, she got pregnant so Rashi brings the following that originally what happened was that uh, Dina uh, should have been born from Rachel. When Rachel was pregnant, she was actually carrying a girl. And when Leah was pregnant, she was carrying a boy. This would have been Yosef. So what would have happened is Yosef would have been born from Leah and Dina would have been born from Rachel. But Leah prayed that she should give birth to a girl. Why? Because Leah knows with Ruach HaKodesh that there's only going to be 12 Shvatim, 12 boys who will be tribes. And if Leah is the one that has number 11, that will give Rachel the chance to only have one tribe. That would be Binyamin. And that would make Rachel inferior to even the maidservants, each of whom had two. So when Leia was carrying a boy and Rachel was carrying a girl, Leia prayed that the girl should be changed to a boy, that the girl in Rachel's body should be changed to a boy and the boy in Leia's body should be changed to a girl. And that is why it doesn't say she was pregnant with Dina because she wasn't pregnant with Dina she gave birth to a girl that was called Dina. Now, that's what Rashi says. Now, the way Rashi describes it, it was a gender change. Meaning, you'll see Targum Anderson describes it differently. According to Rashi, Leah was carrying a boy, and God changed the boy into a girl, and Rachel was carrying a girl, and God changed the girl into a boy. Now, according to Rashi, it was a sex change. That's what Rashi says. But, Targum Yainasan Ben Uziel. Now, who's Targum Yainasan Ben Uziel? Let me just say a few words about him. Uh, everybody knows, if you open up any Chumash, uh, uh, you'll see uh, something called Targum Onkelos. This is, Unculus was a ger, was a convert, was a student of Rabbi Akiva. And Unculus translated the Torah into Aramaic, which was the spoken language of most Jews who were not speaking Hebrew at the time. The Gemara is written in Aramaic and the like. Now, Targum Unculus is a very holy work, but it's a pretty literal work. It's kind of a word-for-word translation of the Torah into Aramaic. But there are other translations of the Torah in Aramaic that bring in many, many more midrashim and elaboration. And uh, the most famous is the Targum written by Yonasan ben Uziel. Now Yonasan ben Uziel, the Gemara in Sukkah tells us, was the greatest of Hillel's Talmudim. He was a Talmud of Hillel. And he was so great, it says, that when a bird would fly over his head while he was learning Torah, the bird would get burnt because all the angels came to listen. And the fire of the angels the fire of the angels would burn the birds. Yonahs ben was a very, very great, great person. In fact, Hasidim like to say that how you react to the story is the difference between a chassid and a misnaget. Uh, let's say you hear this story about how the angels you know, were listening and their fire burnt the bird. So a chassid is going to say you see the power of a person that even the Malachi Ashares come to hear our Torah and our mitzvahs and Hashem loves our Torah and our mitzvahs even more than the angels in heaven. And you see the holiness of a person, how you start from the lowliest world and you make Hashem a place for the Shechina. And you get very inspired. I think the Rebbe used to use chess as an analogy. He used to say, a human being is like a pawn. A pawn on a chessboard is the lowest, lowest piece. But only the pawn can become a queen, right? The pawn can get elevated to all, virtually, you can't become a king. There's only one king, only Hashem is king. But the pawn can become the closest to the king. That's possible. Now, angels are higher than us. You have knights and you have rooks. All the angels are higher than us. But they're static. That's a beautiful mushroom. They're static, they can't move. We're pawns, we're so low. But we can become Closest to the king, so uh, so that's how Chassid hears the story of Yehinus and Benuzia. A misnagate, who's always interested in legalism says, "Huh, I want to know who has to pay for the bird. If I'm learning Torah and the malachim show up and your parakeet flies into that fire, am I responsible or is it an act of God, so to speak, in which nobody's responsible? So a litvak will always be interested in the halachic application." The Chassid more in the inspiration. But being as of now, was a very, very great, great uh, tzaddik. And he wrote this Targum on the Torah that uh, gives many, many midrashim. And, you know, he himself is a Tana, so he himself can say midrashim. He doesn't have to draw the midrash from somewhere else. He is one of the people who would be able to teach uh, these midrashim. And in his midrash, he gives a different version of Rashi. Listen to this. It's a different version. It still starts off the same way. Leah was carrying a girl. I'm sorry, the other way. Leah was carrying a boy. And Rachel was carrying a girl. But instead of a sex change, Hashem switched the babies. Hashem, miraculously, took the baby girl that was in Leah's body and put it in Rachel's body and took the baby boy that was in Rachel's body and put it in Leah's body. Um, I'm sorry, that's Took the baby girl in Rachel's body and put it in Leah's body, and took the baby boy that was in Leah's body and put it in Rachel's body. See the difference? According to Rashi, all that happened was the same kid changed gender. According to Targum Yanis ben New there was a, a baby switch, an embryo switch. Now, listen to this. So according to Yainas and Ben Uziel's understanding, Yosef was genetically Leah's child. Yosef was fertilized from Leah's egg. And Dina was fertilized from Rachel's egg. In other words, it turns out Rachel and Leah are surrogates for the fertilized egg that was initially in the other person's body. Now, since the Torah always says that Dina is the daughter of Leah and Yosef is the son of Rachel, even though you had this embryo switch, this would be proof that the definition of your mother is the birth mother rather than the genetic mother. Now, you understand why this is not a proof according to Rashi? According to Rashi, all that happened was a sex change. So Rachel is both the genetic and birth mother of Yosef, albeit he went from a girl to a boy. And Leah is both the birth mother and genetic mother of Dina, although she went from a boy to a girl. So according to Rashi, you don't have any proof. But according to Yenison Ben Uziah, that you're dealing with embryo switching, you actually have a very beautiful proof that you follow the birth mother. But again, again, uh, this cannot be used for halakha because it's, uh, it's a medrash, and it can have different meanings and the like, but it is fascinating that you can kind of see uh, some type of halakhic principle coming out of this particular, particular medrash. Now, a little aside, uh, I don't know, did, did, you, did you spend Shabbos in Svat after everything? Uh, you still have a catch up? I hope uh, it was a nice uh, in spite. Uh, but Yeniz um, Muziel is buried near Svat, in a very, very deep valley that's called Amuka. Amuka, deep, uh, it's near Tzvat. And Amuka is said to be a place where you go for Shiduchem, for Shiduchem. Because I think Yonasan Muziel himself never got married or died young. And it was not Soha, but in Shomayim, uh, his mission is to help people find shiduchim. So that's people, him? huh? That's who he goes to. That's where people go to. They go we to went, Amuka. you we went there. Though. Yeah. Did you? You went to Amuka? We yeah. Yannis, yeah. Yannis, yeah. If that's where you went. If that's where you went, and uh, there's all sorts of stories. People do different things. A lot of people uh, accidentally leave their sitter with their name, address, and phone number in it. Either boy or a girl. <laughs> uh, so. To be Makai Mashava Saveda, a Yeshiva guy will call up this young lady in New York and say, "Oh, I found your sitter, and you no know, she do come that way." Hey, different, different a way. Weird, it's a little bit, but, but there different ways things happen. They said, "Well say, God works in mysterious ways." <laughs> and the like. Uh, but that's Amuka. Uh, now Amuka is built up a little bit. I remember uh, years ago, uh, there literally were no lights. It is pitched you can't imagine it when you're taking a bus or a car to Amuka how absolutely pitch dark it is. I mean, you have the headlights, but I mean, you know, it 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 was a terrifying ride because there were also no fences and the the car could easily, the bus or the car could easily go off the side of the mountain. Uh, Now I think they built it up a little bit more so it's not as uh, desolate as it was. Uh, One thing about uh, deep valleys that you really see in Israel, uh, you understand, you know, when, when Hashem tells Avram that I will make your children like the stars of the sky, so you ever wonder, I mean, I'm not so impressed with that. I mean, I look up at the sky, what do I see? I see three stars, I see four stars, like what, what's the big deal about the stars of the sky? But if you ever are in a dark valley and you look up at the sky, there actually are like millions of stars in the sky. You, you never see it because of light pollution. Um, so when you go in a place like Amuka and it's a night, you can actually appreciate the It's really a that a lot of things of nature we don't really appreciate today. We don't, we don't see, we don't understand. In fact, Ken, um, I heard something about the Rebbe. I, I, don't, I don't remember the context of it. It was something about, uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know when it would be. I can't figure out the year. But they were traveling and they got lost. And the Rebbe says, if you look at the stars, you can figure out what direction you have to go by the, by the stars. There was such a thing. I mean, people don't even know today. but. Uh, the stars can tell you, now because stars are, different stars are always in certain positions of the sky. If you know the stars well, you can actually uh, figure out how to uh, get on the right, uh, right direction. You know, I'm from Maryland, so in Annapolis, Maryland, is the Naval Academy. Uh, that's, you know, if you want to be an officer in the Navy, you go to the Naval Academy. And the Naval Academy is very old. It is actually older than the United States. The Naval Academy was founded when England still ruled the United States. And for more than 200 years, one of the required courses in the Naval Academy was celestial navigation. How do you navigate a ship by the stars? But around 20 years ago, they discontinued it because they, everybody has computers. So you don't need to look at the stars. You can just do a computer. It'll tell you where you have to, have to go. But you know, uh, what's interesting is that computers sometimes conk out. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's still a good thing to know. So it's interesting that the Rebbe, I don't know. Actually, the Rebbe worked in the Navy, right? I know that, but I, I, I don't know if that's where he was. But he wasn't, he wasn't on a ship, so I'm not sure, except, except coming from Europe. So I'm not sure how he... No, he had to learn it to be in the Navy. Yeah, but he was not, he was not in the, okay, I'm not, actually, maybe, maybe, but he was never on the water, right. but still, but he knew the celestial navigation among uh, everything else, too, okay. Alrighty, so that's the, uh, the interesting medrash of Targum Yenisan Ben Uziel and, uh, and if you were in Amuka, I hope Ezra Sashem uh, your tefillahs uh, should be uh, should be nizkabel nizkabel in a good way bishat <laughs> okay, so now uh, let's uh, talk about uh, I'll, I'll probably go and finish it today, let me talk about another aspect of uh, technology here that is something that is called a stem cell research. Now, what are stem cells? This is very, very uh, interesting. Uh, when you have sperm fertilizing an egg, so now you have, at that point, it, it has a name, it's called a blastocyst, although that's not so important. And Then it begins to divide up, and that's called an embryo. It divides up one cell, two cells, four cells, etc. For around the first 10 days, the cells do not yet have a function. You don't yet have kidney, brain, liver. It's just a cell, it's like a part of cell. It could be anything. There is no differentiation. Only after around two weeks do the cells begin to specialize. So some cells will become spinal cord tissue and some cells will begin to be kidney tissue, liver tissue, heart tissue, brain tissue. This is called cell differentiation. But for the first two weeks, it's just a cell, meaning it doesn't, uh, it's not a cell of anything. Uh, now, the reason this works is because of an amazing thing, a very, very amazing. Every cell in your body has the DNA of your entire person. So if you take a skin cell, in your skin cell is the DNA for heart and liver and kidney and brain. And in your brain cell, there's the DNA of liver and the kidney. And what happens is, there's an on-off switching mechanism in which if it's supposed to become a brain cell, the DNA is dormant for, for liver, or kidney, stops. And when, if it's supposed to become a kidney cell, the other DNA stops. And to this day, the idea of switching and non switching the on-off, what are the triggers that make it one thing than another? is really one of the great uh, not fully explored mysteries of cell biology it's an amazing thing every single cell every part of you contains the whole of you the whole of you is in every chelot that's uh, the message every chelot again it's similar in Kabbalah to the spheres that uh, each sphere contains all the ten spheres, and it keeps on going infinitely. That's why there's the Chesed of Chesed, the Gevura of Chesed, right there. Each, each level has all the other levels in it ad infinitum. And you can go mamish a million levels down, each thing contains everything in it. So it was found around, uh, it's not that new anymore, it was found around 20, maybe 25 years ago already, maybe 20 years ago. That. If you harvest stem cells, meaning these are called stem cells, meaning cells that have not yet acquired a specialized function, meaning you harvest them from an embryo, an in vitro embryo, within 10 days, 10 to 14 days, you can culture the stem cells, you can actually make them grow in a laboratory, and then you can coax them. You can use various chemical and electrical ways to make them heart valve tissue. In other words, they, you, you find a way of turning on whatever you want to make them. You can make them kidney tissue, heart valve tissue, spinal cord tissue, brain tissue. In other words, they can become anything, which you can then use for transplantation or the like. Now, eventually, we're not there yet. Eventually, we could be able to make whole heart, a whole heart and a liver from stem cells. And that would solve the shortage of organ donation and everything else. Today, we cannot, science cannot make a whole organ, but it can make heart valve tissue. So through stem cells, we can manufacture heart valve tissue, which can then be given to a person to repair their heart if there's a tear in their valve or the like. Or for Parkinson's that need that has damaged spinal tissue. You can create spinal cord tissue and put it into the body. Okay? So... So again, the definition of a stem cell is simply a cell that has not yet acquired a definitive function, but you can harvest it, you can make it grow, and then you can make it into a million different things. Now, where do you get stem cells from? So stem cells can come from three basic places. Embryonic stem cells are the ones I've just been talking about. That's where you have in vitro fertilized embryos, and within 10 days, you take out these stem cells. That's called embryonic stem cells. However, there are stem cells in an adult. In your bone marrow, there are stem cells in your bone marrow, and that can be taken out and used to create all of these different things. And there's also stem cells in the umbilical cord, when a woman gives birth to a baby. So uh, there are three different stem cells: embryonic stem cells, um, bone marrow stem cells, and umbilical cord cord stem cells. Now, halachically, the last two, the latter two, have re- don't, don't really have any problems. They would actually work very well. But for some reason, researchers like to use the embryonic stem cells because they feel they have the greatest adaptability. They have the plasticity is the term. They can become like anything. Uh, The other stem cells are more rigid and they don't respond as well. So, stem cell research is a very, very exciting technology that can help a lot. But here is the problem. Just like the old saying, in order, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Uh, Well, you can't get embryonic stem cells without destroying a human embryo in the process. In other words, what you have is, sperm unites with egg, you have a blastocyst, the parties have decided that they don't want to have a pregnancy. I'll discuss why that would be so. So the question becomes, okay, if you don't want the pregnancy, let us use this embryo for stem cell research. Let us harvest the embryonic stem cells. So here is the problem. If you're going to destroy a human embryo when you harvest embryonic stem cells, are you committing an abortion? Is that an abortion? Remember, the definition of an abortion is destroying an embryo once it's fertilized. Until it's fertilized, it's only contraception. It's birth control. That's a separate matter. But once it's a fertilized human embryo, it's an abortion so the halachic question again I'll leave it for next week I have to leave a little early but the halachic question is is the harvesting of embryonic stem cells in a manner that will destroy the human embryo is that a violation of the halachic rules of abortion now let me point out although this doesn't prove anything for us, that the Catholic Church, have to, which is very, very, very much against abortion, obviously, they do take the position that the harvesting of embryonic stem cells is abortion and cannot be allowed under any circumstance. That is the position of the Catholic Church, and at least they're consistent. They say, what's the difference if it's a pregnancy or a fertilization of an in vitro embryo? It is still an abortion and therefore it is prohibited. The question is, what would halakha say about that? Right? Uh, so we have to go over some of the halakhas of abortion, and then we'll apply it to stem cells and see. Now, what, one other thing, just to put this in perspective, because I, I, you need to understand this. When we talk about harvesting stem cells is killing the human embryo, just to give you a picture, how large is that embryo when you are extracting the stem cells. It's not microscopic. It's visible to the naked eye, but it is the size of a thick pencil point. So you're not talking about something that looks like a baby. You're talking about something that looks like a pencil point. But, uh, so all it is is like this smudge on the table there, this whatever it is, and you're extracting through special instruments, stem cells, Now, that that doesn't mean it's not abortion. All I'm saying is to just put it in perspective that we're not talking about killing a baby. But the question is, how early will the laws of abortion apply? Is it immediately after fertilization? Right? We need to know this. Also, I do want to point out that there's something illogical about the Catholic Church position, and that is the following. If the Catholic Church... Remember, the way this comes up is a couple were engaged in fertility treatments. And they decided that they either have enough kids, let's say, let's say, for example, a lot of embryos are fertilized. So they don't want to use all of them. These are called spare embryos. So one of, the, one of the proposals is, can we use a spare embryo for stem cell research? Now, the Catholic Church says no. Okay, let's imagine the answer is no. What's going to happen to that embryo? It's not that the embryo is going to be carried and be born. The embryo is going to be thrown away. So the Catholic Church is not saving any lives with their They allow ah. them to be thrown away. Huh? The Catholic Church allowed the embryo. No, no, but you have to understand the Catholic Church doesn't make the decision. I mean, if I'm a Catholic and I ask the Catholic Church, can I donate the embryo uh, to stem cell research, they're going to say no. So I, so I tell the hospital, no. So the hospital's going to throw it away. <laughs> you know? so, so the problem is you're not really saving the embryo. You're going to have to throw them away? Well, well luckily, maybe not. Uh, that, that's exactly right. But, but remember, these institutions don't operate. The way it works is they cannot experiment on your embryo without your permission. But if you don't give permission and you don't tell them what else to do, they, they will throw it away or at least allow it to thaw. Okay, so what we will talk about next week is really just this this particular question, and that is, uh, first of all, the laws of abortion generally. We'll we'll go over. And second of all, how do the laws of abortion apply to embryonic stem cell research? Uh, Would it be Mucher, would it be -er? User? And importantly, Is there a difference between Jews and non-Jews? Because this is a very important point. Abortion in particular is gonna be a very important point because Judaism or Jewish law has two different legal systems. We have a legal system for Jews and we actually have a legal system for Goyim. The legal system for Jews is the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. The legal system for Goyim it's also from Hashem. It is from Hashem. It is called the seven mitzvos of Noah. And the Rambam writes, the Rambam writes, that although Jews are not supposed to try to convince other people to become Jewish, we don't proselytize. I'm not supposed to go over to somebody and say, hey, would you like to become Jewish? Right? We don't do that. If they want to be Jewish, we can encourage them. Even then, we initially discourage them, but then we encourage them. So we're not supposed to try to make people Jewish. But the Rambam says, there is one type of proselytization that we do do. We are supposed to try to help non-Jews keep the Seven Commandments of Noah. Now, once again, uh, that is a halakha in the Rambam. Most religious Jews are not involved in that because we have enough with the Jewish people to work with. But as you know, as of course all of you know, one of the Rebbe's Mitzayim was in fact uh, the Noachite project to work on the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. And uh, the source for his Mitzayim was in fact this ruling of the Rambam that Jewish people are supposed to encourage non-Jewish people to keep the Noachite laws. Uh, for a while, he was the, Chabad was the only one doing it. Now some other organizations uh, do it uh, as well. There's Rabbi Yoel Schwartz in Geula who is uh, very involved and if you're interested, if you look at websites, if you Google Noahide, they usually spell it with an H N-O-A-H I-D-E, Noahide law you will actually see websites of non-Jews who are interested in keeping the Noahide laws and they ask questions and like they're not Christians, it's a little confusing they worship Hashem the same way we worship Hashem they are believers in one Gods, and they believe that Hashem gave the Torah, but Hashem gave the Torah to the Jews, and their obligation is Noahide law. And as the Rambam again writes, a non-Jew who keeps the seven Noahide laws, because he believes they came from Hashem, gets a share in Olam HaBa. So Judaism is kind of unique. Christianity, they don't like to say it all the time, but Christianity clearly believes you can only go to heaven if you believe in Yashka, that is the only way, otherwise you have eternal damnation. Islam certainly believes that, that that way, that without Muhammad, you're a goner. We do not say that. We say you don't have to be Jewish to have eternal salvation. Uh, Jewish Jews have a special connection to Hashem, and if you want that special connection, you can convert, the, the gateway is open. But you don't have to convert, you can be, Connected to God eternally uh, by keeping the seven Noachide laws. That's a very unique position. Most religions do not take that position. Most religions are what is called exclusive pathways. Judaism creates alternative pathways to Hashem, which is an important thing to know. So what we're going to see next week is when it comes to abortion, there's a Noachide law of abortion and there's a Jewish law of abortion. And strangely enough, the Noachide law of abortion is stricter. Abortion for non-Jews is actually a stricter issur than abortions for Jews. So we'll, we'll go over that uh, next week. Anyway, all, all be well, and Thank again, you. Hashem should give us uh, all uh, nechamas and beisrus Hashem. May the sorrows that call yourself faced be a, a step bringing us closer to Mashiach. Amen.